0: But in the sacrifices, there's a reminder of sin. For every year, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said the above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first order. He f- abolishes Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering he was perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I have that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in on their hearts, and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of those, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, but encouraging one another and all this more as you see the day drawing near. For we go on sinning sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth. There no longer remains sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of the judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by one who has been spurned spurned the Son of God and who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is the fearful th- it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. but recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those who s- so treated for you had companions on those in prison. You had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession, an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have read, you have needed of endurance, so that when you
1: Before we dive in here, I'm going to ask, if you would, to join me and let's, uh, let's go to the Lord. Let's ask his blessing on his word going forth here this morning. Father, throughout history, you've shown yourself strong on behalf of your people. We see, even all the way back in Genesis, when Adam disobeyed in the garden, you were ready to put in motion your redemptive plan. When Noah was confronted with a wicked generation, you had him build an ark to preserve his family and begin again on the other side of the flood. When Moses kept complaining about his assignment, you brought Aaron by his side to be his spokesperson. When Joshua is troubled over the defeat at lowly Ai, you told him to get up and take care of the problem in the camp that sin needed to be dealt with before the nation could move forward. When Abraham took his only son Isaac and bound him on the altar, he didn't understand all of what you were doing, but he had faith in you to obey the instruction. And Mount Moriah stands then as that place in Scripture Where he saw you provide a ram substitute in the place of his son. Even as we fast forward into the New Testament, we see Peter sitting in prison. He's ready to be killed the following day. And God, you showed up in that prison. You unloosed his chains and you escorted him safely out of the prison. A little bit later on we see that the Macedonians were in need of God's Word and you got Paul's attention and a vision and called him to Philippi where he preached the Word. And we see that Lydia is saved. A jailer and his household are saved as a result. So Father, all throughout Scripture, you're taking care of problems. Some big, some small, but all of great importance to your people. Lord, this morning I confess to you that we are a needy, People. We need your help each day. We need your power. We need your grace and mercy. And we need your great wisdom. Lord, we encounter many problems in this life, but none greater than sin. And so, Father, today I pray you would give us eyes to see what it is, ears to hear what you've said about it in your word, and that you would give us a heart to deal with it regularly. That we would repent as needed turning to you often to help us in our time of need. And so, Father, we thank you for being our faithful and merciful high priest. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. We are a people in search of answers to life's problems. A people in search of answers to life's problems. You know, problems take on lots of different shapes and sizes, don't they? Some are short-term, others are long-term. Some problems might need extensive research and inquiry, while others should be handled relatively quickly. I emphasize should be because there's a story behind that. It's an interesting story, and it's a story that has stayed in my brain for several years now. I was going to a fast food restaurant years ago. And they just come out with this new menu item called the seven layer burrito. That's a long time ago. I'm telling you, it was a long time ago. And they had this, they had this nice colorful display right sitting there on the front counter when you walked in. And it looked good, but I had a problem. I didn't know what the seven layers consisted of. So I turned to the customer service worker at the register and asked, can you tell me what's in this? And to which she replied, and I quote, I don't know. I ain't never tried it. Those were her exact words. Now, I share this example, and I know it probably sits at the bottom of the barrel in terms of our problems that we encounter today. Perhaps barely even fits the category. But I wanted to share it because at an elementary level, I had a problem that day that begged to be solved. And my question was intended to help solve my problem. I only wanted to know what was in the burrito. And I thought, who better to ask than someone who works here? Well, this week, some of you probably saw or heard the disturbing report of the three-year-old boy who found his way through an opening in the Cincinnati Zoo. Anybody hear that story this week? Found his way through an opening, in fact, into the gorilla exhibit at the Cincinnati Zoo. And you know as we compare problems this morning wanting to know the contents of a seven layer burrito and wanting to get your son out of the gorilla exhibit there is no comparison. Amen? No comparison. I mean imagine you're the parent and you see your three year old in the exhibit within arm's reach of a 400 pound gorilla. There's not much time to waste solving this problem. A life is on the line. And you know, so here we have two examples, and really one on each end of the problem continuum, if you will. One, a very low-level problem. The other, an immediate, got to take care of it now problem. One has potential to be remedied. Potential should have been remedied through a simple question. And the other was remedied through immediate action. One is relatively inconsequential in the scheme of things, but the other had life-threatening implications if not remedied quickly. You know, friends, as we turn to the scriptures and we turn to Hebrews 10, and this morning we're going to look at at verses 5 through 18, we begin to see the significance of our greatest problem here on earth. And for the past several chapters, <coughs> excuse me, the writer of Hebrews has been teaching us about the one who alone can solve our greatest problem. He's taught us about how the first covenant dealt with the problem, and he's shown us and he's explained to us how effective this covenant was in dealing with our greatest problem. What we've come to see is this that the Levitical sacrificial system isn't able to take care of our problem. It can't solve our greatest problem. Never could, never will. In fact, far from solving our greatest problem, it merely stirred the pot on an annual basis. And we pick this up and we see this in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 10. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins. A reminder of sins every year. For, here it is, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. It's not possible. So what's our greatest problem? It's important we understand this. Young and old this morning, it's important we understand this. What is our greatest problem? Our greatest problem is a three-letter word. Sin. Sin. That's our greatest problem. And you might be sitting here thinking this morning, well, I've got a lot of problems. Well, I know some other people who've got some pretty big problems. I want you to think of of all the problems in the world today around us, all of them, every single one of them. Abortion, divorce, homosexuality, pornography, theft, murder, drugs, alcohol. We can place every single one of these under the umbrella of sin. There's lots of reasons why people might get involved in these things. But if you go back far enough or you dive deep enough, what you find is it's a heart of sin. Why aren't people more concerned about their greatest problem? You see, no one's exempt from this problem. This problem affects every single one of us here. You know, it's interesting, I find it interesting that when people come in and walk inside the, the doors of a church building. They're oftentimes looking for and asking for a message that's relevant. A message that speaks to them about today. What we're talking about this morning is so relevant to everyone. And there's not a one of us that are exempt from this problem. So we see, as we're looking here in the text, how the Lord is working through our situation here in regard to sin. And, and what, he's, what he's doing here is we look at this and ask these questions about why aren't people dealing with this? Why are so few seemingly uh, concerned about this situation of our sin? You know, it doesn't take long if you look online and, and you notice that people are, are diligently seeking answers to their questions. Well, we're a people in search of answers to our problems. But you know, it looks like we're spending way too much time seeking answers to problems that pale in comparison to the one the Hebrew writing is addressing. Sort of like my two examples up front. We spend our time with problems like what's in the burrito when we got a life-threatening situation staring us right in the face, speaking of our sin, has eternal implications. Perhaps we operate more according to the first century sacrificial system than we think. You see, for just as these people were offering sacrifices and offerings on a regular basis, same ones every year, being reminded of their sins, so too, we tend to hang out in the same ruts, year after year, operating the same way, doing the same things, and guess what kind of results we reap? The same, stints. same sins are still staring us right in the face. Same ones. Coming out of verses 3 and 4 in the text, there seems to be an emphasis on sin and the impossibility of animal blood to effectively cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. It is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. And then you get to verse 5. Therefore, it's not possible that that these animals could atone and take away sins. Therefore, I want you to see that God understands what our greatest problem is. You You might not come up with that. ...what your greatest problem is. You might think you have a list of other problems that are much greater... ...or perhaps you just don't even think about it. But God, I want you to know this morning... ...He does know, He does understand... ...what our greatest problem is. And He, from before the foundation of the world... ...He's had an answer ready for our greatest problem. Isn't that good news? You see... So what bulls and goats couldn't do, God now, through the writer of Hebrews here, chapter 10, he's about to elaborate on the death of Jesus and show how his death is the very provision for taking care of our greatest problem. If you leave here with nothing else, I hope you leave with this. My greatest problem is no problem at all. For God. And remember what your greatest problem is? Sin. My greatest problem is no problem at all with God. That's good news. That's hope. I want you to hold on to that. So as we talk about this great problem we have, I want you to know right up front, our greatest problem is no problem at all with God. God. So how then from the text does God go about solving my greatest problem? That's the central question I'd like us to look at this morning in the time we have left. And how, how does God solve my greatest problem? Let's look first of all. Just the first part of verse 5 is really what I want to spend attention on here for a moment. And that is that God solves my greatest problem by sending his son. God, first of all, God solves my greatest problem by sending his son. Look at the beginning of verse 5. Therefore, when he came into the world... Er, Let's stop right there. When he came into the world. Don't bypass that. That's absolutely significant to God taking care of our problem. So what is the core of teaching in the scriptures surrounding when he came into the world? Well, Jesus coming into the world is known as his arrival, his advent, his incarnation... Sin is my greatest problem here on earth, and God sends his only son out of the heavenlies down here to earth. God sends his son here that he might effectively deal with our greatest problem once and for all. And just to kind of go backwards in Hebrews, if you will, turn back to Hebrews 2 with me for just a moment. A few verses that connect right here. That give us a background, and understanding of why he had to come I'm going to begin in verse 11. I'm going to just read a few verses. Verse 11, chapter 2. For both he who sanctifies, we'll read about that later, and those who are being sanctified are all of one. For which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren. We're of the same flesh and bones. He came down here to be like us in that regard. Look at verses 14 and 15. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, we've shared in that together, he himself, Jesus, likewise shared And by the way, the word there, shared, he voluntarily shared in that likeness with us. Why? That through death, that through death, notice that, that through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Look at verse 17. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren. Why? Why? that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation, big word, for the sins of the people. Propitiation for the sins of the people. What is propitiation? It's a sacrifice that bears the wrath of God against sin and thereby turns God's wrath into, listen, favor. Turns his wrath into favor. And you might ask, how is it that God's wrath is turned into favor? God's wrath doesn't sound very favorable to me. God's wrath, the Bible says, is being poured out against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And so what that means is, should you choose to tackle your greatest problem on your own, you can be assured that God's wrath is imminent. It's coming upon you. But I'd like to explain how God has chosen to take care of your greatest problem. You see, the sacrifice that that he bore, that bore God's wrath... ...there was a sacrifice that bore God's wrath against our sin, our greatest problem. And Jesus satisfied completely the righteous requirements of our holy God against that sin. So instead of dying, which is what we deserved... ...Jesus took our place. We've been made alive... In Christ, the Bible says, as a result of his willingness, Christ that is, to bear God's wrath targeted at our sin. Because, remember, Christ had no sin. He took our sin upon himself. And so his dying breath truly has, as the song says, brought us life. He paid the ransom, he provided the pardon, and he broke the chains that once held us in sin's dread sway. That's what it did. His death. You see, God solved our greatest problem by sending His Son Jesus down to earth. In fact, the Bible goes on and says back in chapter 10, a body, a body you have prepared for me. A body. This is mentioned in contrast to the sacrifices and offerings that had been in place. Jesus essentially says, you didn't desire these things, nor do you have any pleasure in these things, speaking to the Father. Remember, these are the words of Christ in Psalm 40. Christ himself is speaking here. And what he's saying, in other words, is that the old order of things is not sufficient for what God had planned. The sacrifices and the burnt offerings were needful for a time, but they were not going to be long-term solutions. These were types and shadows and not the real thing. And, And so what we see in God sending his son, he sent the real thing. The real thing, he sent him when he sent Jesus, instead of the sacrifices and offerings through bulls and goats, a body was prepared for Jesus, the one who took on flesh. We sang about that this morning. Fullness of God came as helpless babe. How is it that God sending Jesus solves our greatest problem? You know, there's a, there's a couple passages that speak to Christ's coming in John 1.18. It says that the Son, Jesus, declares the Father. In Hebrews, early on in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, it points out that this Jesus, he's the son who's been around from the beginning of creation. And he's deemed the brightness of God's glory. He's deemed, in fact, the exact express image of God. And you remember the account in John 14 when Philip's asking him a question, show us the Father. And Jesus says, Philip, Philip, have I been with you so long? And he says, he who has seen me, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So God sends his only son. And the son displays the glory of God himself. And the incarnation, think about this, the incarnation, God coming down, that was truly good news in that a savior was born. Remember those words in Luke 2? A savior has been born to you in the city of David. Someone came near who could do something about our greatest problem. God came down and changed everything. His arrival secured our survival. He rescued us. Think about it this way. When we have a problem that needs solving, it's it's typically best handled across the table face to face. And I think about this oftentimes in terms of relationships, relationships. Whenever there's conflict in a relationship, have you ever been a part of a relationship where there's conflict and you tried to handle it from a distance? Anybody? And when I say from a distance, I'm even talking like email or texting. Huh? That would be from a distance. Instead of, uh, a phone call's better, but sitting across those wonderful lunch table chairs would be, even, would be the better alternative across the table, face to face, dealing with the situation. Well, suppose that my car breaks down on the highway and I call the mechanic. I have a very good mechanic, too. I call him and I explain to him my situation and he tells me all the things that I need to take care of the problem. And he simply gives me this bullet list of items that I need and he proceeds to conclude the conversation. Now, you'd think it's strange if all that he gave you was a list of items to take care of your car. You see, you didn't call him for a list. You you called him to come into your situation and help you solve your problem. That's why you called him. See, God has solved your greatest problem by sending Jesus. Jesus. He chose to rescue you by sending him on the scene to the place where the problem existed, right here on earth. And at just the right time, the Bible says God sent his son. How many of you here this morning are glad he did? Yeah. How's he solve our greatest problem? First of all, by sending his son. I mean, the text tells us that right there in verse 5. We can't bypass that part. How else, according to the text, does God go about solving my greatest problem? He does so by providing a cross. Not only by sending his son, but by providing a cross. Look at verse 12. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. You know, death serves as an equalizer, doesn't it? From dust we are, to dust we return, our days are numbered, we're but a mist, we're here for a while, we're gone, we're just one little blip on the radar of eternity. Death is coming. And woe to the man who dies without having received by faith the solution to his greatest problem. Think about how many people die without the solution to their greatest problem if that doesn't stir you up just a little bit. To know that there are people who don't know. Or people who haven't yet received. They know, but they haven't received that yet. On the surface, you might think it a bit extreme. That one would die in order to solve man's problem. Death is permanent after all. There's a finality to it, isn't there? And yet it rings with a resounding commitment level, doesn't it? Commitment. I'm willing to die for this. It states with great clarity the length to which one would go to secure an answer for my greatest problem. See, Jesus willingly laid down his life and death to communicate with great clarity his abundant love toward you. He expresses his solution to your greatest problem by providing a cross. Listen, the cross was the mark of execution in Jesus' day. It's it's not the painted up, advertised, marketing thing that we see all around us, these all pretty crosses. I, I, I highly doubt his cross was beautiful in that way. This was a mark of execution in his day. This is how people died. The cross was for the criminal. It was for the thief, it was for the rebellious traitor, it was for the outcast. And the cross sent a strong message of warning. Don't do what these guys did or you'll end up in the same condition. You see, the cross was a visible warning for all to see. The cross was synonymous with death. If you went to the cross, you were going to die. It served as an instrument of death. And Roman soldiers, highly trained Roman soldiers, saw to it that one, in fact, some, many, perhaps, delighted in this act of killing, seeing that they were dead during a crucifixion. No, there were no free passes on the cross. No one was going to come down and live a normal life again on earth after the cross. Death certificates were written at the cross. Listen, the scriptures speak of God sending His Son, the incarnation, but He came that He might ultimately die on the cross. If you have any questions about that, Isaiah 53 is a good read. It's a picture of what was to come in the life of Jesus. See, His death is no surprise, it was prophesied, it was part of God's redemptive plan. In this body prepared for Jesus, He came. And it was in this body that He died on a cross. And as odd as it might seem to think of someone dying to remedy your greatest problem, that's exactly what Jesus did. Consider that someone would go to the length of dying to solve your greatest problem. The fact that Jesus died on the cross is not new information in the book of Hebrews, amen, we've, we've, we've heard this, it's been washed over us on many occasions. The writer spent a great deal of time telling us about the death of Jesus, and why his death is so much better than that of the bulls and the goats. Hebrews 10, though, does offer new truth, connected to his death, important for our understanding, and here they are, two of them in summary, I'd like to give them to you. First of all, I believe here in chapter 10 and 5 through 18, he's letting us know that Jesus' death was according to the will of God. Jesus' death was according to the will of God. And secondly, I believe he's writing here to tell us that it is Jesus' death that makes one holy or sets one apart to God or sanctifies us. Quoting from a passage in Psalm 40, the words of Christ himself, personalizing why he's come in the body prepared for him. He says, I have come to do your will, O God. I have come to do your will. Let me give you just a a, a short bullet list of some verses. I'll read them. You can jot the reference down and look at them later. And this is not exhaustive. But I I felt like it was helpful to to just pull some from John's gospel because there's so many in John. John chapter 4, verse 34. Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. That was his food. The food of Jesus was to do the will of God. John 5, 19. Jesus says, The Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. It speaks to him doing the Father's will. Even... The word, the very words that he spoke. He spoke only that which the Father gave him to speak. John 5 verse 30. I can of myself do nothing. He's so interconnected with the Father. I can of myself do nothing. Are we connected to the Father in that way? He goes on and says, as I hear... I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. John 6 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Do you see a pattern? I have not come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. It kind of has a little cadence to it, a little ring to it. John 8 29, and he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone. For I always do those things that please him. I always do those things that please him. How does one always do the things that please the Father? They're doing the will of the Father. That's Jesus. See, the text in Hebrews quotes this passage from Psalm 40. And then in verses 8 and 9 of Hebrews 10, he further explains the meaning ...of those verses from Psalm 40... ...saying that sacrifices and the offerings that are alluded to... ...here's what happens... ...they take a back seat to Jesus... ...who was coming to do God's will. He takes away the first... ...that he may establish the second. That's what verse 9 says. The first covenant... is stated elsewhere in a different way... ...but essentially this idea that the first covenant... ...is annulled or set aside... ...in light of the new covenant... The Levitical system of sacrifices is powerless, but the spotless lamb of God is all-powerful. And he's able to carry out and accomplish God's perfect will. You see, quoting Jesus from the Psalms would prove that even the Old Testament scriptures spoke of a time when the Christ, in doing the Father's will, would come to earth and ultimately die on a cross for the sins of the people. And the text is advocating that Christ, in coming here to earth, had every intention of doing the will of the Father at all times. Whatever he spoke, he did. Whatever miracles he performed, even, listen, even the death that Jesus died, they were all carried out in alignment with the will of his Father. Everything he did here on earth had the signature ...of the Son of God. He came to do... ...God's will. And in Hebrews 10.10 says... ...by that will... ...God's will, by the Father's will... ...by that will... ...we have been sanctified... ...set apart as holy... ...we have been sanctified... ...through the offering... ...the offering, that's language of sacrifice and death... ...right, offering... Through the offering of the body, remember the body that you've prepared for me? We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once. I love what Stedman writes here. He says, we've been made holy in the death of Jesus and we remain holy even though we struggle with daily weakness and sin. Anybody else here struggle with daily weakness and sin? Okay, good. I, I think all of us do. If we're, if we're truthful, we all do. He says, this should be borne in mind when we come to a statement in Hebrews 12, 14, which says, holiness without which no one will see the Lord, right? We're to pursue holiness without it, no one will see the Lord. He it, it is. it's a holiness that's obtained by faith, not by self-righteous effort, and it's not lost by momentary failure. This is so important for us to understand because it's bedrock truth in Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are what? In Christ Jesus. You see, our sanctification, according to Stedman, is both an accomplished fact. Verse 10, we have been sanctified. Fact by his death, by his offering. It's, a, it's an accomplished fact and it's a continuing process in verse 14. By this one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Those who are being. That's present, ongoing. We are being. Another word progressive sanctification. You've probably heard of that idea that we are growing. We are more and more becoming like Jesus, we're being renewed in the inward parts. As we're in Christ, we're being pulled away from these things that we used to do, really the chaff of our life, the things that really didn't bring a whole lot of meaning to our life. We've been doing those things, wallowing in those things, and the Lord, through His Spirit, does a work and sanctifies us. He sets us apart for Himself. And it's a wonderful thing. We have been sanctified, and we are being sanctified. Jesus came to do the Father's will. And the Father's will included the cross. And it was at the cross where Jesus offered himself once for all. And so when he died, he sanctified us. He set us apart for himself. We are, uh, Peter says we are a holy nation, right? We are a holy nation. He made us holy. We can only be a holy nation because of what Christ did. God sent his son down here. And then God provided a cross... There's no way possible to be a holy nation without a holy God sending His Son to the cross. So it's true that at the cross, we are sanctified and set apart as a child of God. And it's also true that we are being sanctified as a result of His one offering. Notice in verses 11 and 12 then, this contrast that's brought forward of the, of the priest in, here on earth again and Jesus. Look at the contrast. Look at the contrast. The priest stands. The priest is ministering daily. The priest is offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. And the priest is offering sacrifices that can never take away sins. Think about that. Contrast that with, but this man, verse 12, Jesus, he sat down at the right hand of the throne on high. He sat down. He's currently waiting. What's he waiting for? He's waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. He's waiting. He's waiting for another return. He's coming back. This time the Bible says not for, apart from from sin, but he's coming back for salvation. He's coming back to judge. That's the word that's used. He's coming back to judge. Jesus offered one sacrifice for sins. And Jesus paid completely for sins. He solved our greatest problem. Isn't it great to know that our greatest problem is paid for at the cross? To use the the lyric or the line of the song that we sing, who would have thought that a lamb could rescue the souls of men? A lamb. The perfect, spotless lamb of God. Well, he sends us his son, and he provides us with a cross. One other thing that God's done to help solve our greatest problem. And that's this. He solves our greatest, my greatest problem by witnessing to us, or, or really the idea of indwelling us. But witnessing is the word that's used in the text. Verses 15 through 18. But the Holy Spirit, verse 15, also witnesses to us. See, the first two parts really speak to what God has done in the past. He sent him down here to earth carrying out the will of the Father. And Jesus died on the cross one time for our sins and now sits at the right hand of the Father waiting to return. But this last part of the text is wonderful for the present. You see, he uses here a truncated version, a shortened version of Jeremiah 31 in verses 16 and 17. By the way, you can read the full version in, in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 8 through 12. Okay, The witness of the Holy Spirit that's mentioned here in verse 15 of chapter 10, is the reference to the Old Testament Scriptures. Think about it. What comes immediately after his witness to us? He's given to us now the words of Jeremiah the prophet. The witness is spirit. The spirit is the one who was moving holy men to write. Remember, every writer on every page of Scripture is impacted and marked by God, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. Let's not forget that. Right? Holy Spirit is God. Holy Spirit in 2 Peter chapter 1 is the very one who moved in the hearts of holy men to write what we know have before us here, the scriptures. And so it's his witness. The word is his witness. All scripture testifies and witnesses to his handiwork. And so it's in that light where Jeremiah 31 is quoted again. Earlier in Hebrews 8, it's quoted to reference the new covenant that was coming. And here it's referenced as a reminder of that new covenant living. He says, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. And then he adds their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. So what we have here is this contrast to a a law written on tablets of stone, right? And God is speaking through Jeremiah that there's coming a day when my laws are going to be in their hearts... And in their minds. And the Holy Spirit's going to be poured out. And he will minister. And he's going to abide in their hearts. And he's going to remind my people always of my truth. And in addition to that, in the new covenant, the sins of my people are forgiven. The price for sin has been paid forever in full. You see, Jesus carried out the will of his father and he died on the cross. He was buried and, and according to the scriptures, he was raised on the third day and he ascended back to be with his father and he waits until his enemies are made his footstool. Psalm 110, reference point. But if you look again at verse 18, I'd like you to let verse 18 just let that truth sink deeply here for a moment. Now where there is remission of these, remission, forgiveness, Where there is forgiveness of these, what are these? Sins. Where there is forgiveness of sins, there is no longer. Let me repeat that. There is no longer an offering for sin. No longer. When Jesus died at the cross, your sins, which were many, our sins, which are many, were forgiven. Since you've been forgiven of your sins now in Christ... There is no longer an offering for sin needed. No more animals needed. No more annual reminder of sins is needed. No priests are needed. Remember, the veil was torn. Now we have access because of the cross. Christ died once, canceling your debt, satisfying the just payment of God's wrath that was charged to your account. Jesus, having died, he says, in effect, I've got you covered. I have you covered. And that covering, friends, is a covering of blood. It's a blood that cleanses from all sin... ...and sanctifies forever those who call upon Him by faith. And so God solves my greatest problem. He does it by sending His Son. He does it by providing a cross. And He does it by witnessing to us. Yes, through the Scriptures, but also even yet today through His inward witness, available now through the Spirit's abiding presence in us if we are in Christ. And the Spirit's witness in us reminds us of Christ always, guides us in the same path that Christ followed while He walked the earth. You see, the Spirit doesn't even speak on His own. Much like Christ, He didn't speak on His own accord. Neither does the Spirit. The Bible teaches that Jesus is the way. And the ministry of the Holy Spirit witnesses in our spirit to walk in the way that Jesus walked. So the next time you read the Gospels and you study the life of Jesus, I'd like you to read it through the lens of Jesus doing the will of His Father. All that He did was in accordance to God's will. His life was spent in the middle of God's will. And that includes his climb up Calvary. Which brings to our attention something that would probably be helpful to just consider for a moment. A great lesson, in fact, for us as it pertains to obeying God's revealed will in the Scriptures. You see, because God's will is not always going to shine a light on a majestic mountaintop filled with colorful landscapes and streaming meadows. That's not always going to be his will. God's will is not always flashing with a neon sign saying, it's safe here, therefore go this way. That's not it either. God's will is not always the least expensive route. Oftentimes, it's the most costly. God's will is not found by counting heads, seeing how many people are doing this. You see, because the Bible says it's a road less traveled, and the road less traveled is deemed the less populated one. It's deemed the difficult path. Oh, that that just makes us cringe, because we don't like difficult things. In their book, The Battle Plan for Prayer, been working through that individually. The Kendrick brothers, they write the, these words speaking of God's will as it pertains to your prayer life. Listen to these words. It says, sometimes the most difficult, painful, fearful, or illogical path is the one that ends up being the open door, the one bearing His fingerprints. When Jesus prayed, not my will, but your will be done in Luke twenty-two forty-two, 42. Listen, he prayed that in the garden. He says, he stood up to take the difficult path which was in the center of God's will. God's will may very well be the most difficult the most painful, the most fearful, the most illogical path that he ends up opening. It may be the path, in fact, that has God's fingerprints written all over it for you to walk in. That little three-year-old who found himself face-to-face with a 400-pound gorilla. I was reading an article and said that never in the many years of the zoo's existence had someone made their way into the gorilla exhibit. But somehow this little three-year-old got in there. And I got, I got to thinking, just thinking symbolically and picturing some of this. In a sense, what happened was he transgressed the boundaries. I don't know how he landed in the gorilla moat exhibit. He was right there, right next to him. But somehow, some way, he transgressed the markers and the boundaries that were placed there. Praise the Lord, he was found. Someone noticed that he'd crossed the marked boundaries, and that he, and he was rescued. The gorilla had to die that the boy might live. That sounds familiar. You know, we're a lot like as I'm thinking about this. We're a lot like the little boy. We've sinned against a holy God. We've transgressed His laws and boundaries on many occasions. And unless God had seen us in our pitiful state, willing and able to... Unless He'd seen us and He was willing to do something, and we saw in the text, God sent His Son. We would have remained in danger of dying a horrible death eternally. Separated from God. But praise God, He found us He rescued us, and the testimony of the Bible is that he rescued us while we were yet, what? Sinners. He saved us even in the midst of our transgressions. He placed our feet on solid rock, and he pulled us out out of our miry situation, and he's breathed new life into us through his spirit. So you see, our greatest problem was solved when God sent Jesus down here to earth. Our greatest problem was solved when Jesus took our sin upon himself at the cross, and our greatest problem is solved. Once the Holy Spirit took up residence in my life, He's now reminding me daily of Christ and His finished work. And I open the Word, and it reminds me of His finished work for those in Christ. And I believe He's saying to us, Child, your problem is solved once and for all. Know that I've done the work that's necessary for you to enter into my rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my burden is light. Jesus says in the words of the psalmist, Behold, I have come To do your will, O God. I have come to do your will. You know, there is no better place for any of us to be than in the middle of God's will. Ephesians 5, 17 says, Do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Understand what that is. The Bible talks about how we can seek and search that out, but in many ways, He's already given to us His word. It's given to us His will. What He desires for us. His commands to follow. So as we leave here this morning, I want you to remember the good news and the hope from the passage that your greatest problem is no problem at all with God. Problem solved at the cross. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you about for the wonderful work that you accomplished through your Son. We thank you, Lord. Even though we were transgressing, we crossed the boundaries that you've set. Lord, you rescued us. You brought us up out of the miry clay. You set our feet upon the rock. And now, in our hearts, we can sing a new song. We can rejoice. We have the light of Christ in us. Father, thank you for the wonderful news. Thank you for the gospel. In many ways, this passage just is another reminder of of the gospel, the good news, how you saved us, how you've delivered us and rescued us. Father, thank you for solving our greatest problem. Because we could try, we could ask a lot of questions. We could research it out. We could study it. Father, we would never be able to solve the greatest problem. We praise you, Lord, that through your son Jesus, through your redemptive plan, you saw fit to send your son down here to take care of our great problem. And you provided a cross to solve that great problem. And you've given to us now Holy Spirit who's orchestrated The the scriptures that we have before us who also abides within us those who are in Christ always pointing, always directing always guiding us to the very things of Christ that we too might walk in the will of the Father thank you thank you Father for doing these things for us and I pray Lord in return that we would as we've already sung this morning we would surrender our lives to you That all that we have, all that we are, will be brought before the cross, brought before you, laid at your feet. That we would walk in the light that you give to us each day. That it would be our heart's desire to carry out your will. Give us grace, give us the power, the enablement to do so, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.